You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. Tonight, a piranha can throw a brick to a directorial debut. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am Thomas Mariani, giving somebody their big break in pictures, Mr. Who are you? Adam Thomas, and I'm the king of the world, mister. Just you wait and see. I got all the moxie. Oh, you just came right off the bus to Hollywood, you got your bags right next to you, and you pitched me this wonderful script, it'll go so well. I got a hobo pack full of dreams and beans. <laughs> and scene, we're great actors, Yep, as you all can tell. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you, Webbies. <laughs> Webbies, please, obviously. <laughs> yes, um, but welcome to the latest episode of Double Edge, Double Bill, uh, where we're talking about just apropos of nothing, uh, directorial debuts. Because at the end of our last episode, for those who might be new, um, we picked a good and a bad feature from uh, Adam had two bad choices and I had two good choices and we each end up randomly getting our double feature, which uh, this week is uh, fairly interesting because uh, what we're going to discuss first is our bad pick, uh, which is Piranha 2 The Spawning from director James Cameron, who was, did a few things afterward. Um, couple. and oh, A couple things. Um, and then uh, the good pick we'll be discussing after that is Brick from Ryan Johnson, who also did a couple things later after that. Just movie. a couple. Just a couple. Yeah, Liter- well, literally a couple, actually. He's directed far less films yeah. than James Cameron has, <laughs> yeah, sure. uh, yeah. unfortunately. But, um, you know, let's talk a bit about just, like, the idea of talking about a directorial debut, Adam. Because um, we're both film nerds, and we like sort of exploring a filmmaker's filmography, especially when we do episodes sure. about a particular filmmaker. And um, oh, do you really like diving in after you discover somebody and, like, oh, where, how'd, where'd they start? How'd they get from where they were now to where they were back then? Uh, yeah, for the most part. I mean, there's some that I just consider one-offs, but like when it's something like, oh, I don't know, like a Christopher Nolan or something like that, then yeah, definitely I, I tend to go back. Maybe not as often as I should, but then again, a lot of these guys that I consider the biggest directors of all time, I kind of grew up with their filmography already. Mm-hmm. Like Spielberg's and Scorsese's and things like that. Um, so for a lot of these guys, I was around when they first came out. Well, but at the same time, I'm sure you didn't see, like, Mean Streets when you first saw whatever Scorsese movie. So you, like, went back to some of these earlier films later. Yes, you are 100% right. Mean Streets was not my first Scorsese film. <laughs> when you were uh, young, Tyke, you saw Mean Streets. <laughs> yep, and The Taxi Driver. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I definitely like to, especially if I see something in their film that I'm watching, like, wow, what else has this fucking guy done? Like, Danny Boyle's one that I did. Christopher Nolan, I definitely did. Like, after I saw, uh, God, I think even as early as Memento, I went back and watched Following. Del Toro's one, another one. But yeah, I try to do it as much as possible. Yeah, I mean, especially when it's it's usually a case where it's like some director's second film is like a really big hit, and you're like, oh, what's this first film they did? Like, that was a big thing for me 
with one of the directors we're talking about tonight, or somebody even, like you mentioned Christopher Nolan, like when I watched Batman uh, Begins and like Dark Knight, I'm like, oh, who is this guy? Who was his earlier films? Like you just kind of want to dig into that filmography, especially because I grew up a lot on the Peter Graves era biographies. And that's why I learned oh, those were about... so good. Yep. Oh, man, I miss those. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I, would, I would grow up hearing about, like, oh, uh, Steven Spielberg was born in Pasadena, and then he did this or whatever the fuck. Um, and they would talk about, like, Sugarland Express or Duel or any of these other things. Like, oh, man, the guy who made, like, Jaws and Indiana Jones and all this other stuff, he made movies before that. And it's interesting, especially going back, like, you mentioned Following with Christopher Nolan. It exists merely as a blueprint for the other Christopher Nolan movies. No, oh, 100%. It's a 70-minute, just, like, beat-for-beat structure of, like, how he would do so many of his other movies later. Exactly. I mean, and that that's what's fun about it, too. Like, like you said, you watch that, and it's, it's only 70 minutes, but you're like, okay, I can see this in every, basically every movie he's done since. Like, the guy has, it's, it's, like you said, I don't know, man. I don't know what I'm trying to fucking say here anymore. I'm all emotional tonight. Because uh, <laughs> of Piranha 2. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the most emotional film we've ever covered on this show. Oh, dude, it got me. It really got me. Uh, the scene with the nurse in particular. But um, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> but no, I definitely do try to go back and uh, celebrate uh, a filmmaker's uh, work as much as possible. Just because there's so many hidden gems, too. Good and bad. But let's go ahead and get started, since you're just chomping at the bit to discuss oh. it. <laughs> let's uh, let's uh, get into Piranha 2, The Spawning. Sleek. Fierce. Savage. Deadly. The Piranha. For centuries, nature's most ferocious killer. The new breed is here. Faster, more ferocious, and infinitely more deadly. Piranha 2 Flying Killers. So, uh, Piranha 2 The Spawning uh, came out November 5th, 1982, and is the directorial debut of uh, James Cameron who, before this, had had a fair amount of experience in terms of just making films in general, mainly through the Roger Corman School, which, those of you unaware, Roger Corman is a producer who's still around now, but for decades has been making uh, schlocky, entertaining to some degree movies. Sometimes. This is technically the second Corman production we've covered now. Well, that's the thing, actually. We talked about this last week, about uh, this being a Corman production. It actually isn't. Um, it's a bit confusing here because uh, the first Piranha, which uh, we should mention, was an early film. Not the debut, but a very early film for Joe Dante, who we've talked about uh-huh. on the show previously. Um, and that was a Corman production. Um, it was sort of like a spoof of Jaws, because it came out around the time where there were movies like that, or another subject we covered, Orca, were coming oh. out. These like oh. aquatic mammal movies came out in the wake of Jaws that were like killer attacks. And they're like, oh, Piranha, let's do something silly with it. And if you've never seen that movie and you're like a Joe Dante fan, it's a lot of fun. Like that you well, see Piranha a lot of awesome. His, yeah, it's it's a very funny spoof. Uh, it's got Dick Miller playing the spoof of the mayor, who's like running an amusement park. And there's a great mm-hmm. bit where his assistant comes up like, uh, "Sir, there are piranhas attacking in the pool." <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. like it's, it's very silly, very tongue in cheek, very gory in a fun way too. There are a lot of cool deaths in that movie. Um, but apparently, after Piranha was such a big success, um, Roger Corman wasn't really um, tactile with the rights, so they end up getting sold off to an Italian producer 
named uh, um, Ovidio Asonidis. I'm just going to take your word for it that you pronounced it right, given your lineage. <laughs> I mean, yes, exactly. <laughs> Anytime I say an Italian name, instantly it's pronunciation. Yeah. It's canon. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, he ended up um, kind of taking the reins and making this production. Um, but, you know, back to Corman, because uh, we're going to dance around this movie a bit. <laughs> It'll be very interesting. <laughs> um, but back to the, with the Corman thing, it's interesting because James Cameron got his start doing a lot of like production design and second AD work and stuff like that on movies like Galaxy of Terror, which if you've never seen, is definitely a movie. It's a weird. Yeah, and I believe he did like most of the set work for like Battle Beyond the Stars, right? Yes, and things like that. Yeah, he's definitely like he a lot of like he did a lot of the painting. Some of the effects, some of the set design, uh, things like that. That's how he really kind of got his start. I would definitely recommend, especially with Galaxy of Terror, the fun thing about that is, in terms of set design, it's really, in that movie, like, hey, we need to make the spaceship look futuristic. How about we literally paint Big Mac containers and put them on the walls? Mm -hmm. That's literally what they did in those movies. Yep. Um, But you can tell definitely that that would probably be where he got his start, because James Cameron... Uh, got his start sort of like in wanting to do film by actually coming from, from a more technical side because he wanted to be like an engineer initially when he was younger. And so you can tell, like, especially in his later films, he kind of had an interest in going from a more mechanical perspective with like structure and the obviously the effects work and all this other stuff. And I would definitely say the later films, not so much this one. <laughs> Which also, interesting fact I realized, I think James Cameron's the director we've covered the most films from on our Is show. Is it? I think so because we've done Aliens. We've oh, done true. Avatar. Um, Avatar. Um, we've done this movie, and even to a certain extent with um, uh, Strange Days, which he was very heavily involved in as well. Oh, I don't know if I like that. I don't want to. I don't want to celebrate James Cameron. <laughs> this was your pick, Adam. You, I know, had us talk about this. So I guess we should talk a bit about Piranha Two: The Spawning. Then go ahead and talk, Adam. Why did you pick this one? It was like shooting Piranha in a barrel. Hey, whoa! Bing, bing, bing. Literally, I just, I came across the title. I already knew of this movie. I don't think I've ever seen it. I thought I'd seen it. I don't think I ever had. And I'm like, oh, well, Piranha 2, James Cameron. That's about as rough of a beginning as you can get for a big-name director. And that's why I picked it. And uh, you go ahead, Thomas. You go ahead, you, you go ahead and uh, <laughs> go ahead fill the air here. Well, the funny thing about it is I'm actually I had seen this um, before and actually earlier this year because I actually had revisited some early James Cameron movies that I hadn't watched in a while. So and you've seen this three times? <laughs> so, so, yeah, because the, the first time I was like, <laughs> I gotta watch it a second time. It's that great, the two in a row. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> I think it was after we did actually Avatar for our first overrated, underrated episode. I'm just like, you know, I haven't seen a lot of James Cameron movies in a while, and then this was the one I hadn't seen. I'm like, let's cross this off the bucket list, thinking I'll never have to watch this bullshit again. Well, you're welcome. And, you know, upon this watch, I really saw a lot more of the subtleties. <laughs> don't give this, don't give this thing any more artistic credit. Don't you fucking dare. I don't want to hear it. What are you talking about? I mean, you can see in so many crowd shots where you can barely see anything and what's going on at all. Um, it's all shot at night. I really Just... love the one scene, the, the romantic scene where, you know, she's like... You could stay if you want. We don't have to make love if you don't want to. And all you can see is her one eye lit. <laughs> There's nothing else. Okay, it's well, so dark. that's the weird thing is also, given this is an Italian movie, they also have the weird thing with um, earlier on, there's 
Also a weird, creepy scene in which the main female hero and her son are very close. Like, very close to each other. But like, hey, what do you do? Aren't you going to go to work? Yeah, I don't know. What are you talking about? And they get, like, almost to kissing. And I'm like, why is this happening? Well, this is my first time watching. I'm like, are they banging? I think they're banging. And then when I realize what's going on, I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's very odd. Lance Hendrickson's in it. That, that's true. It's the first time we work with Lance Hendrickson. Um, and Lance Hendrickson and Ningley is like a sort of guiding light in this movie because yeah. all of the interesting drama happens whenever he pops up on screen because he is the boat cop that is also <laughs> the, the husband of our main character. The estranged husband. The yep. estranged husband, yes. And all the interesting scenes are like him, especially with those glasses, those sunglasses oh, he wears. He just loves true. working with them sunglasses. And He's point, super young in this. Very young, yes. And yet he has the voice now that he has when he was Kershak at Tarzan. Like that guy, you know, some old people, their voice gets deeper or more gravelly. His hasn't changed a bit. He's had that deep, intimidating voice forever. I'm sure if we saw home videos of him as a child, he would still have that same voice. Oh, a hundred Of course he would. Of course he would. We went to the park today. <laughs> I hit my paddle ball three times in a row. <laughs> Jesus. This is, de- look, all right. <laughs> Full disclosure, um, it, like I said last time, and um, when we picked these movies, like, oh man, we're going to talk about this movie five minutes, and there's not going to be much to talk about now. It's like, we'll find a way. Uh, we're trying to find a way now yeah, as we talk. Look, okay, there is scenes in this movie, especially the one I alluded to earlier, where a nurse pulls a corpse out of whatever, like a meat locker, whatever they're called. I think it's a morgue. <laughs> yeah, but, I, but I've heard it, like, you know, in movies, hey, which is one of my worst things in movies. I hate it when morticians are eating and they put their food down on the corpse. Like, what are you doing? Anyway, it, trust me, if you pay attention, it happens all the time. But anyways, and then the fucking obvious hand puppet piranha comes springing out of the chest and then flies. Because let's not forget, these are army-engineered killer fish that were engineered for Vietnam. Right, and, it's, <laughs> and the big thing is that the producer, his big thing, but like... You know, piranha, do whatever you want, I guess. But the big thing is they need to fly. Because fuck it, right? Yeah. <laughs> they need to fly now. <laughs> Let's figure that out. So, and then it attacks her. And it's clearly like a guy with a hand puppet just pumping his hand on her neck. Mm-hmm. Like just opening and closing his hand. It looks like there was an old He-Man playset where it was a cave. And one of the things was it was a hand puppet you'd put on. And you'd control it like it was a monster's head and mouth. It looks almost identical to that damn thing. I'm not convinced that it's not that thing repainted and put with slime on it. I will say at the same time, though, one of the few things where you can kind of see James Cameron's, like, sort of (laughs) initial spark of creative juices as a director is, I would say, the build-up to that piranha actually coming out, I think, kind of evokes a lot of the stuff that would later happen in, like, a Terminator or some of his more, like, horror genre-influenced stuff that he would do a bit later on. I think the build-up works. It's just obviously the... Uh, payoff is, as you mentioned, quite comical, to say the least. But then at the same time, that's also one of the more interesting scenes in the movie, because so much of this movie is a lot of, like, P. 
people talking on the beach. That's all the movie is. Well, yeah, it's a, it's so much of that, and it's also so self-serious. There's, like, a few weird comedic moments. Like, this one kind of middle-aged lady who's just like, oh, hey, young buck, you wanna go for a go or whatever? And it's just like, well, yeah. what? What is this? But, I'm a dentist. <laughs> but it's so self-serious. The rest of the time, there's a whole subplot about, like, oh, my son was killed by these piranha, and I'm going to get them, and all this other stuff. It's just, like, it feels so in contrast with, the, like we mentioned, the first piranha is a parody. It's a comedy. It yeah, actually has, like... Dead serious. You know, it's so dead serious in a way that's just kind of boring. It's so dull. It's not even in, like, a fun, bad, interesting way. Oh. It's just kind of like, they're definitely padding time. Really, the most interesting stuff about this movie is just that James Cameron directed it and also all of the weird fucking production stuff that happened. Where, like, James Cameron was brought on and the producer initially said, like, oh, yeah, you can go ahead and direct whatever. He was apparently filming for five days, and the producer was like, no, this is shit, get out of here. But he also kind of still participated in, like, the cinematography side of the movie from that point on anyway. So he's just there kind of sulking about the fact that it's like he needed to still be there because the other, like, distributors were like, we need an American director attached to this at the same time. So it's like all the interesting stuff is just like he, like, would break into the, like, editing bay after he saw a bad cut and would secretly cut the movie (laughs) because he's, once again, James Cameron, the most self-obsessed, ego-driven person, just like, no, it must be good. I have to make it good. (laughs) Well, he fucking failed. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Given this is his directorial debut, do you see any of the later things for Cameron here? So Lance Hendrickson. Other than that, no. I was so fucking bored. I was so bored. This movie's an hour and like 25 minutes. Yes. It took me almost three and a half hours to get through because I kept pausing it and getting up and, you know, getting something to eat or doing whatever. It was just, this was a fucking chore. Anytime my wife or daughter would walk in the room, I'd pause it just so I could have a conversation to, to get me out of the movie. Just no waste. Just like, hello, young child. How are you today? Lily, Lily, what's going on? What's up? What's up? Yeah. Yeah, how you doing? Go say hello to your mother for me. Hi, mommy. She's in the other room. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, ah. Oh. Like I said, I didn't, I wasn't paying attention enough to notice any nuance. Let's put it that way. Well, even though this time, mainly because I just watched this like six months ago, I played it like one and a half speed. Because <laughs> like, I'm not devoting the full yeah, I don't blame hour, 25 well. minutes to this. But I will also say another thing um, that feels sort of the most James Cameron-y about it is the underwater stuff. I feel like a lot of that, you can see a lot of the later influence that would later happen with like Titanic and um, his documentaries and shit like that. It, it seems like he cares the most about like those sequences and the more genre-focused things, as opposed to any of the scenes where it's like, the main hero is trying to get with um, this other guy who she's having an affair with, who also is like secretly involved with the genetic testing that made these piranhas. Odd. I mean, you don't. And the thing is, you don't care. No. I'll give you that. The underwater stuff, while still uh, clearly done by you know a first timer or a novice, it's not terrible. I've seen worse underwater effects. Let's put it that way. It's not bad. Yeah, even though there's also, that has one of the weirder, more interesting moments where a couple is underwater, like, scuba diving, and they take off their breathing apparatuses to make out underwater. Yeah, what the fuck was that? (laughs) And that's in, like, the first five minutes of the movie. And that happened, I went, wait, what? That's stupid. Why would you do that? Yep, and then you get a lot of piranha vision, which is just really dumb, too, where it's just everything goes red and blue. Mm Mm-hmm. This is just this is just garbage. I it's 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 really 
just a boring fucking movie. Like, this is even more boring than Dracula. It's at least while I'm watching Dracula 3D, I'm just, like, perplexed by what I'm seeing. Like, I cannot believe they did this, that they're doing this. I'm like, when is this got to be over? I watched a three-hour movie last night that within two hours and 20 minutes, I'm like, okay, all right. I was at that point in 20 minutes on this one. <laughs> well, even then, like, I, I still think there's some things in here that would make, like, gun to my head, I would rather watch Piranha 2 um, over, like, a Dragon 3. Everything else, because it is shorter. Um, but also... <laughs> But also, there are just a few, like, weird things. There's even, like I said, there's other stuff that I think kind of recalls Cameron. Like, even there's the asshole boss of the main lead character who she goes to, she's like, look, they're piranhas attack. Just like, well, I already have divings booked for the next several weeks. Uh, you're, you're fired! fired. <laughs> right, okay, which doesn't make any fucking sense. No, I've divings booked. You can't do this to me. You're fired. Well, then who's going to do the diving classes? <laughs> Clearly, I will do the diving all aboard. Um, and he has a voice just like that, too. <laughs> he talks oh, yeah. just it's like really that. Bad. But it kind of fits into, like, how Cameron later on would have a lot of corporate stooges as his main sort of villain protagonist anyway. From this well, because he's clearly got a problem with authority. Clearly. If he's not the authority, he doesn't want anything to do with it. Exactly, yes. Um, so, like I said, some of those tidbits are kind of interesting. Um, but no, this is definitely uh, the worst James Cameron film. Even you as the Avatar hater. Can yes. tell you, this is far worse than Avatar. This is worse. Yeah, this is worse. Because at least Avatar's got some pretty stuff to look at in it. This just does not at all. No. So, okay, well, what, what would you say is your favorite James Cameron movie? Hmm. Um, Top of your head, man. Fish to your head. You gotta come up with it. <laughs> Piranha to my head. Um, <laughs> I would probably say the, more I, the older I get, it's the first Terminator. Yes, mine too. It and T2 are very close to me. I agree. I think Terminator's damn near a perfect sci-fi slash thriller slash even close to horror movie. Yeah, and shocker uh, that Cameron considers the Terminator more of his directorial debut than this one. What well, yeah, so would I. Jesus. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'd go Terminator, and I think T2 is right up there. I really like The Abyss. Um, not so. I'm not in Titanic. I think it's a bloated just mess. I think uh, we well we know my thoughts on Avatar. Um, I love Aliens, and but this is just fuck. You know, I would say actually, just as something to counter that and just to distract from this movie once again, I yeah, actually watched Titanic fairly recently, and I think it holds up better than some people give it credit for. Really, I haven't seen it in a long time. See, that was the thing for me too. Like when I was a kid, it was like my sisters had the two, double VHS, and they loved watching mm-hmm. it all the time. And I just like grew sick of it. And you know, after a lot of distance, and then going back to it, I think that one is like actually a, one of the better examples of like a disaster movie love story that we've gotten, honestly, in the last several you know decades. Because there's definitely a uh, <laughs> movie that's in no way is trying to rip off Titanic at all. <laughs> yeah, not at all. No, not in any way. I don't know. Um, Piranha to the spawning, right? Yeah, we're talking about. Yeah, yeah I think that's it. Yeah, yeah I think, I think we could stop talking about it. I mean, any final thoughts though, Adam, on Piranha to the spawning? It's just super boring, and it's incredibly forgettable. Uh, and I didn't really pick up, like I said, on any of like the nuances. Like, oh man, you know, James Cameron, you can see where he came from. It's just, meh, meh. It exists. Yes, um, like I said, there's a few interesting bits and pieces of like, oh, there's one puzzle piece for Cameron, there's another, um, but there's there's not a lot, um, it's it's very boring for even its short run time. Um, Lance Hendrickson's really good in it, 
And if you read about some behind-the-scenes stuff that's interesting, like some of the stuff I mentioned, or that Lance Henriksen nearly got his legs cut off during the helicopter thing at the finale. Aw, good for him. Or that James Cameron came to set in Jamaica, and they were like, oh, hey, we haven't gotten any locations. <laughs> we haven't Jesus so he literally like got the production wallet and a Polaroid and was just like, "Hey, can I? We use this beach? I'll pay you like this much money <laughs> and shit like that." Which shows his tenacity as a filmmaker. If anything, that's sure. The, if anything, this is it's a great example of like you know most directorial debuts tend to be like, "Oh, filmmaker makes a big splash and then he ends up like you know making more movies from there." Versus this is a case where it's James Cameron clearly like having the worst experience right off the bat. And then it's like, okay, now I know what I want to control and what I want to have some kind of, like, protection over, which later got us Terminator and all the other stuff from there. And Lance Henriksen. I mean, it really did. Uh, I don't know that we'd have Lance Henriksen in the way that we do without James Cameron. Because I argue that Bishop is his biggest role. His most memorable, anyways. Yes, and he also has a very underrated turn in The Terminator. Yeah, he does. I love him in The Terminator. I absolutely yeah. love him in The Terminator. And he was the original choice for The Terminator. Which totally makes sense to me. Right. Because he is terrifying looking. Well, plus he also looks more like a realistic person who would fit into a crowd like a terminating robot would right. want well, to do. Well, he looks like if you just put a thin layer of skin on top of that exoskeleton, that's what you would get. Exactly, yes, because he's very wiry and you can see like... Not goddamn uh, Mr. America. <laughs> or Mr. Not, Mr. Olympus or whatever. What, what are you talking about? Arnold fits in perfectly inside a crowd with a bunch of realistic people, right? Why would Skynet give them Austrian accents? What was the point of that? Um, I think it's a form of coding so they wouldn't be able to decipher everything. <laughs> it's exactly. Like, you gotta decode it a bit before you can... Yes, hello, the friend of Sea Arcana. I'm told she was healed. May I see her, please? Like, what the fuck is this guy's deal? <laughs> like, Jesus. Uh, wow, product is that bad. <laughs> this might be the shortest we've ever talked about an actual movie in context. I, we've already been going for almost a half hour. Most of that was not about Piranha 2, though. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Piranha 2, the spawn. Avoid it. <laughs> yes. No for point. Sure. But what you shouldn't avoid is uh, an ESO show like this one right here. That was fucking smooth. live from chicken town this is the flopcast a podcast obsessed with comic books saturday morning cartoons conventions music stuff from the 70s and 80s that nobody else remembers and chickens it'll be the silliest half hour of your week you can find us at flopcast.net and on the eso network I'm the mayor of Chickentown, and I approve this message. And now, uh, let's go ahead and talk about our second feature, which I think we'll have a bit more to talk about, Adam, thankfully. Sure. Uh, Ryan Johnson's Brick. Brendan? Mm-hmm. I really screwed up. Screwed up how? The brick. What? I, I didn't know it was bad, but the pin's on it now. You gotta help me. Slow down now. This isn't good? No. What are you gonna do? I'm gonna start shaking things up. I get to the bottom, whatever this is. What do you want? Just to see you sweat. I see that you're trying to help her, and I don't know anybody who would do that for me. So, uh, Brick initially uh, came out in 2005 and like, Sundance and a bunch of, like, festival screenings. And ended up having a limited theatrical release on uh, April 7, 2006. And it was written and directed by Ryan Johnson, who most people would know from, um, after this he would do stuff like Brothers Bloom, or Looper, and then Star Wars The Last Jedi. 
your comments of whatever may it yeah. be. Uh, whatever. But uh, one of the you know up and coming uh, hot directors, uh, especially as of right now, um, is set to do that Knives Out movie, which looks very interesting. I'm very excited mm-hmm. about that coming in November. Um, and like I mentioned, this was his first film. And um, it's a very small budget movie. It costs $450,000. And if you don't know what this is, uh, basically it is a noir film that takes place in high school. Um, that involves Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays our main lead, who's sort of a social outcast, who has recently broken up with his uh, ex-girlfriend, uh, played by Amelia DeRaven, who gives him a distressing call very early on in the movie. And uh, he unravels about who's trying to get after her and what the mystery about that is and who might have done something terrible to her from there. And uh, this is a movie I discovered in the way that we were kind of talking about earlier, where um, the first movie Ryan Johnson's I ever saw was Brothers Bloom. And that still remains my favorite of his. If you've not seen that, it's a great heist movie. Mark Ruffalo and Adrian Brody, great movie. I ended up being like, hmm, I want to see what this guy's initial movie was because I love that movie. And uh, yeah, this movie, it's a great example of like a calling card movie where you can tell like somebody made this just to prove of, like, hey, we can have a limited budget, and a small cast, and still make something that's very exciting and very palpable and very cinematic, despite all that. Yeah, I was absolutely thrilled that you picked this. Um, like I said on the last episode, if I had gotten the good picks, this was going to be one of mine. First time I saw this, I, I want to say my brother showed it to me. I think he just found it somewhere and watched it. He's like, dude, you got to watch this movie. It's what the kid from Third Rock from the Sun, because that's kind of how we knew him. Obviously, it's this pre-JGL explosion. So I watched it and I was instantly just like sucked in. I fucking love the old like 40s and 50s noir dialogue mm-hmm. and the choice of language. I absolutely love the supporting cast. Most of the uh, pretty much all the supporting characters. Richard Roundtree is awesome to see him popping up. Uh, it, this movie is just such a great thriller mystery. It's so good. And I love that it's told in a high school. I love that it, it treats the idea of kids in high school with respect. They're not stupid. They're normal, fleshed-out kids. Right. I mean, to the extent of their normal, fleshed-out kids within the perspective of this being a weird noir right. movie. Yes, yes. What I'm saying, they're not, it's not a bunch of idiots. They're not constantly you know, worried about getting laid and shit like that. Well, that's the thing. And definitely when I saw it for, for the first time, I was much more in that age range. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is cool. This is, you know, what I want high school to be. Shocker, mm-hmm. I was kind of a loner. Interesting. Um, but, no way. <laughs> I know. Clearly. Stop it. I know. This is the first time I'd watched it in a very long time. And what's fascinating to me now is it feels like they kind of took the setting of high school and applied it to this concept of like, oh, it's a noir story. And that makes sort of like all of the interactions feel a lot more petty Anyway, that seems realistic to high school, but also even comments on the fact that a lot of sort of the noir mystery stories kind of divulge into we're all searching for a MacGuffin, we're all kind of being petty children about it. I think that's what's so interesting about that setting combo to this noir thing in a way that like most people might think, like, oh, this is kind of a lame gimmick. But really, I think there's an interesting thematic depth there that I don't know if people gave you credit for. Yeah, and you know, the thing is, I can understand how it could be a lame gimmick, but it's treated with such respect and care. That it doesn't come off like, oh, he's just doing this to make it artsy or, you know, blah, blah. No, it it fits the story and it fits everything. Or this is some elaborate episode of, like, Muppet Babies where it's like, it's our noir episode. (laughs) Right. But no, for real, though. I I never, I I think it, the aesthetic perfectly fits the story and the setting. Well, you know, it does its service. I, I don't, it never, it didn't jar me. Let's put it that way. I was able to adapt right away to the way they were speaking and the ideas and everything. 
Right, yeah, and I, th- I totally agree with that, and I think that also really works for somebody like a Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who is one of the more fascinating careers, honestly, of like people yeah, who are really like bizarre. somewhat big stars, where it's like, you you mentioned Third Rock from the Sun, even before that he was a child actor and stuff, like Angels in the Outfield and other shit. Like, oh know. my god, I forgot about that fucking movie. That's how I knew him initially, just like, oh, it's Angels in the Outfield. Christopher kid. Lloyd. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Um, and then he did Third Rock, and then he, but then popped up, and like it was a combo of I think this and Mysterious Skin, the uh, Greg Araki movie that made him kind of like yeah, oh, but he was he was also in that Ten Things I Hate About You as well. Well, no, but I would say, but that kind of fits more into his child actor phase. I think that's that's more around like close to that where it's like oh he's appearing oh, like true. bigger budget like things, and he's a you know um, still a child at that point. But then the combination of Mysterious Skin. And I would say Brick made him burst on the scene as like, oh, he's a weird kind of like, he's got a handsome look, but he has this like weird character actor sense about him. So naturally, let's put him in bigger mainstream movies. And then he kind of disappeared. We're like, he hasn't had a big major role in a film since Snowden. That was four years ago. A huge bomb too. Yeah. And he just hasn't done like much of anything. I know. Uh, Well, I thought after um, Inception, I'm like, Oh man, he's gonna be really, you know, Inception. Oh my God, they brought Tom Hardy back, and they're Joseph Gordon-Levitt giving more breath to his career, and everything. And then Dark Knight Rises happened, and that was kind of it for for him after Snowden. Like, and then he did Snowden, and that was it. Unfortunately, and I, because I really do like him, I like him a lot. Just, I don't know, man. He's kind of a eccentric, obviously. He's a little bit of goofball too. As evidence, if you've ever seen like his hit record thing that he does now, that seems to be his weird passion project now. God, his, his lip sync battle thing when yeah. he was Janet Jackson. Good lord! Right, right. The, the amount of work he put into that choreography. No, he's a, he's he's really good, but he, I struggle to say that he can't be the lead of a movie because obviously he pulls it off here. I don't think he's the lead of blockbuster movies. Small, intimate sort of roles well it's not just that it's also that it's like oh he might be like the star you move and you might look cute but also there's a weird darkness to that character any mm-hmm. of the characters that's the thing is like there's gotta be something slightly off about him as opposed to like being as you mentioned like sort of the lead of a rom-com or anything else like that he kind of falls apart with uh this especially i think it works so well because um his character despite being like oh he's our main lead he's our um detective gumshoe um, he's also an incredibly obsessive person who doesn't have much in his life, so he just immediately globs onto this mystery as a way of like globbing on still to his girlfriend, who, despite how much he's like, oh, I loved her, I loved her so much, he's like, well, really, you treat her more of like this object, this of this. Oh object. yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, and in this case, terrible. It's, and it's down to the point of in this, you know, when the mystery starts going afoot, it's like, hmm, I need to protect this from the police. Clearly, so I'll dispose of the body myself. <laughs> Nothing weird about right. that at all. Can I ask, uh, it's on topic, but what is Ryan Johnson's obsession, or not maybe obsession, but liking of Noah Segan? He's in everything he's done. Yes, Noah Segan is sort of like his good luck charm. They both went to UCLA, I believe. Oh, okay, so they've just been longtime friends. They've been longtime friends, yeah. So, I, mean, I, I like Noah Segan. Noah Segan, okay. <laughs> I don't think he's that good. Like, he's not. he's not on my list. I'll tell you that. He is not on the list. Well, because he hasn't but, done a lot to really warrant being on the list necessarily. He did think, Dead Girl. He did Dead Girl. That is that is true. He did do Dead Girl. And I could have put him on the list for that. I could put that whole movie on the list. In fact, you know what? Dead Girl's on the list. <laughs> right next to John Travolta. Oh, yeah. That's how highly I think of John Travolta. He's a zombie rape movie. 
Jesus Christ. Oh. Um, I, I'll say this with Noah Segan, I think Ryan Johnson knows how to use him quite well. Usually it's kind of like skeevy, weird guys anyway. Like in this movie, or in Looper especially, like I like him as sort of the, the weird enforcer type um, yeah. that goes off against people. And I think... That's another thing is I think what Brian Johnson also does so well is like he can tell like these really intimate, engaging, character-focused stories where like something so small feels so explosive. Because along with those movies I mentioned, he's also directed some of the best episodes of Breaking Bad, including like uh, well, I would argue the best episode of that show ever, Ozymandias, which is near the end of the show and is the one where spoilers if you haven't seen that show, um, the one where Hank gets killed. Can I tell you this? I haven't seen that show. Oh, spoilers. <laughs> For a show that ended I, five years ago. I, yeah, I never never watched it. That's a pretty good show. But I've heard that about him. I know a lot of people talk about it. It's like a lot of people with uh, like Neil Marshall and Game of Thrones. We're like, oh, he yes. did some of the best episodes. But Neil Marshall also did Hellboy, so... At the same time with this one, like you can tell even at this early stage, like he's a guy who knows how to handle actors, but also knows how to like make the most expressive, interesting sort of cinematic display out of what little he has. With especially, there's a great chase in this movie that looks so it's great. So good. Yeah, it's so good. And I love Lucas Haas in this movie. You know, and you get, and it's like, oh man, the pin, the pin. He's just some asshole lives in his like mom's 70s themed basement. <laughs> it's just so great. He's some fucking like really likes, you know, the cure and so not maybe not even the cure but like talking heads with his got sort of phony goth out but tough guy image well right because like this, especially it's so interesting because it's lucas haas who you would know it's like oh he's that q face guy who was like in mars attacks and shit like that yeah and, he what was his big breakout when he was a kid i'm trying He's to... he started as a child actor uh his big one was like witness right witness was his, his first sort of like big yeah, um, big breakout. Child actor role, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I like him here, especially because, like you mentioned, he has all of this intimidation, but it's only within the spectrum of, like, being involved with all these kids. Like, he's the main pin in this very, you know, small-scale atmosphere. That's the only way he can do that. Actually has a lot of intimidation. I think especially, like, him playing off of his uh, right-hand man, uh, Tugger, Noah Fleiss, I think they both have, like, a weird tension that keeps going on throughout mm. the movie, and then especially when they have, like, their big battle of sorts in the basement that gets violent and has the police come in. Um, it, it sells it like, oh, these kids are playing dress-up, but then as things go along, it's like, oh, wait, they're getting involved with, like, serious shit, like drug dealing and all this other stuff. Oh, yeah, it's getting hardcore. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And how much does Noah Fleiss, for some reason, look like Ben Foster in this movie? Yeah, he looks a lot like that, or the the reason I ended up, I looked up his film, I'm like, who, what else do I know him from? He's the main guy in Until Dawn, <laughs> the video game. Oh my god. The guy with the glasses and all that. Ooh, it is him. Ooh, yikes. Um, <laughs> no, this is this is absolutely one of those movies. This, this harkens back to like when we did our episode on Ghost Dog for me, to where it's like, this is a movie that nobody really talks about. Mm-hmm. Granted, we already said, you know, Ryan Johnson doesn't have a huge filmography, but the shit he's done is, I mean... He did the second of the new trilogy. I mean, that's a huge thing. Yes. And yet people haven't really gone back. I mean, Looper was a pretty big hit, uh, but it wasn't huge. And I think Looper got him, The Last Jedi, as far as I know. But you would think more people would know about this movie and talk about it a little bit more. But there's been plenty of people that I've said, like, oh, dude, Brick, and nobody has any idea what I'm talking about. 
Yeah, I, it, it's just, I, I don't know, it might be a case of, like, modern directors, maybe just filmographies don't matter as much, unfortunately, maybe. To, to people in, in this day and age. It doesn't help that Star Wars The Last Jedi is such, like, a divisive piece of media. <laughs> Huge. One of the biggest of all time, at least in my lifetime. Yeah, where it's just, it's one of those things where if anyone even broaches the subject, you're like, oh, what about Ryan Johnson? The guy who ruined Star Wars? No, the guy who saved Star Wars. You shut your fucking oh, mouth. Oh, for God's sakes. <laughs> and the thing is, hey, guess what, people? It doesn't have to be either. No, never. Really. It's, it, it's just a Star Wars movie. It's just a movie. There's cool shit in it. There's shit in it that you don't have to like, but it exists. It's not going anywhere. Just accept it. Like the goddamn prequels. I'm so tired of people bitching about the prequels. Don't get me wrong. I hate them. But they exist. So what? But back to Brick. Back to Brick. <laughs> well, you know, I guess... Well, I guess in terms of talking about like his other films and all that, um, in hopefully more of a way you could express them with James Cameron to Piranha 2, um, do you see some of his like flourishes here that would later show up in the other films that would follow? Yes, I, I do. I definitely do. Um, a lot of when it's uh, a two-person dialogue, more of an intimate sort of connection, that that's peppered throughout all of his work. He's very good at just focusing on a two-person conversation and just having that push the story. Um, he knows how to film it. He knows how to cast it. He knows how to direct it very, very well. And, I mean, that's all over, even The Last Jedi, everywhere. One of the best scenes in Looper is, you know, JGL with that goddamn makeup and contacts for no reason. Hey, what are you talking about? I'm young Bruce Willis. Look at yeah. me. Hey, 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 right there. Hudson Hawk, right? But anyways, that scene with him and old Bruce Willis saying that the diner is one of the best scenes in the movie. That's his, I really think that's his strength. And that's peppered throughout the rest of his career so far. Right, definitely finding intimacy within sort of genre setups. Brick, though, I think especially, you see also a lot of like sort of the genre deconstruction stuff that he likes doing in his movies. Start off here with, as I mentioned, sort of doing the high school version of a noir movie, then following with like Brothers Bloom is like a con artist heist movie, but definitely from the perspective of like um, a a family um, squabble that's going on there or even looper has that where it's like oh it's this elaborate sci-fi story but it's really about sort of like confronting your past and then last jedi is so much about like confronting your past it's just that that amplified to the 10th degree um and is more of like an intimate character story even though it's this big scale star wars story at the same time i think he does like doing that a lot as well and you can see it here right down to like they're having their big meeting uh moment where it's the Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character and Lucas Haas's character, and it's in the dining room while they're, the mom is off like, we don't have orange juice, you want apple juice? <laughs> all this other shit. There, there's so much of that here, too. Especially, I like how also he makes the um, settings feel so kind of shitty, despite the fact that it's like, oh, it's an average high school in, like, Pasadena or something like that. It, it feels very grimy, authentically, in a way, of, like, the uh, noir setting. Even down to the music, which is actually done by his cousin Nathan Johnson, who's done the scores for at least up to Brothers Bloom and uh, Blooper after this. Like, I love the score of this movie, too. Yeah, it's great. It's absolutely fantastic. And, you know, again, to get back to the cast, there's certain actors in here, too, that I particularly uh, also... God, what is it with me and people? I just hate everyone. (laughs) (laughs) What is it with me and people? The Adam Thomas story. Forward by Thomas Mar- Mariotti. I don't know. He don't like him. 
Mamma mia. <laughs> Mamma mia. Um, but like Brian White. I'm not a Brian White fan. Uh, just because he's kind of the same in everything he's in. It's not good. It's not bad. He's serviceable in everything he's in. But I, I'd say this is he's really good in this movie. Even though he's barely in it, he's really good. Well, and he has that great fight scene with JGL, which is tremendous, where it's like they're in the parking yeah. lot and they fight each other. That's yeah. that's another example where you can also see, like, the big inspirations for him, along with a lot of, um, like, uh, Dashiell Hammett stories, like The Red Harvest and Maltese Falcon. He also said Spaghetti Westerns and Cowboy Bebop were the big inspirations visually. And you can totally see that's like, this is a guy who likes anime and also Sergio Leone. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Especially, like... Spaghetti Westerns with the, a lot of close-ups on the faces and things like that. Yes. He's really into that. I like focus pulling or whatever. And it comes blurry behind the face. Yeah, he's he's really into that. So in terms of the actor thing, also, I do agree that like it's a murderous row of people who don't get cast in like, really good parts anyway. Like Emily DeRaven, um, I think, is like really good in a... You know, the part of sort of, like, this MacGuffin, admittingly, of just, like, oh, hey, I've been cast aside, and the whole, like, pregnancy storyline that goes on from there, in worse hands, I think, could come off a lot worse than it is, but feels almost like this, like, really palpable story about, like, these, all these dudes who think, oh, no, I would have been the best guy. It's like, oh, no, you were all terrible. <laughs> You've been all the worst possible young fathers. Pieces of shit, dude. Yeah, totally. They're all just pieces of shit. Megan Good's pretty good in this, uh... Megan good in this. <laughs> right. But I think she's another person who I think was really cast aside and does not get cast in many good parts anymore, or even at the time. But I think she is also phenomenal here as another sort of, like, person that Joseph Gordon-Levitt comes to to get some kind of information. She's just like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. She has that sly femme fatale feel that I'm like. They, like, used to be together at some point. Yes, yes. Yeah. Really, right. really good. And I like uh, Nora Zetner, too. Yes, as uh, the the pretty big femme fatale when... God, the ending of this movie just hits so mm-hmm. hard. That that whole back and forth they have on the football field, talking about, like, oh, guess what? She was three months pregnant, so who could it have been? Hits oh. so hard. Ouch. And, and then I just love how, like, the brain, one of his, once again, other, like, sort of film noir characters comes in, like, oh, hey, what about this thing, boss, and whatever? Like, yeah, what I don't... I don't fucking care, man. <laughs> it's just, it, it's it's a great example of just how that completely shatters sort of the noir text of all this and really just mm-hmm. makes hit hit home how just, like, dark a lot of this stuff has been this whole time. It feels almost just like, you know, uh, Baby's First Chinatown. That's another thing, is, like, if you've never... <laughs> <laughs> if you've never been, like, really explored, like, film noir, this is a great entry point. This is a great example of, like, a new noir that would get somebody into other noir movies. I think so. Yeah, I definitely think so. Especially for people who might be a little bit uh, apprehensive because, you know, people. some people don't like older movies or black and white movies or just whatever. Uh, this this could be a really good jumping off point. I, that's, I definitely agree with that. They're basically cops and gangsters, 100%. Yes. But it's just dickhead high school kids. <laughs> I mean, that's all it is. But, yeah, that's, that's a really good – you know – that's why I do this show. For those little bright moments of insight. God. <laughs> Most of the time it's just terrible. He just hates every second elsewhere. No, that's that's my everyday life. <laughs> I guess you hate people, as we've established previously. <laughs> like a lot of people. Matthew Broderick killed a guy. <laughs> Actually, I found out it was not a guy, but a woman and her daughter. Ta-da! That's way worse! That's way worse, exactly. <laughs> 
Maybe that's why Jennifer Grey got the plastic surgery. So she can hide. Um, anyways. I think was, we're going to, we're going a bit off the yeah, rails at it. Right, so why don't you go into your final thoughts? But no, like I said, I'm so glad you picked this. I, I think this is another one of those just lost to time gems. Unfortunately, it, was, it came out at the time where indie movies and even nowadays, well, indie movies are kind of making a comeback. But at this time, indie movies were like nothing. Nobody gave a shit. Like if you weren't a blockbuster, you weren't nothing. No, you get, get a gem every couple months, but that was it. And uh, this, I, I'm afraid this is not afraid. <laughs> I'm not afraid. It doesn't keep me up at night. But I, I, I fear. Oh, do people but, know about brick though? Do they? Oh God! Do the kids like the brick, Papa? Papa? <laughs> um, but I think this, this is one that kind of got lost in the shuffle and by the wayside. And uh, I, I think it's a just such a good mystery thriller movie. I don't understand the uh, – well, I guess I do understand. It got shit for promotion and shit for release. But this is definitely one that I hope uh, more people seek out. Well, and for me, yeah, I agree that I think it's a phenomenal film. It's a great calling card movie, like I mentioned, for Ryan Johnson. It has so much of his great talents displayed at a very early time. Um, where it feels definitely like it is a low-budget movie, but at the same time it doesn't lack any like real – emotional engagement or stylistic flair or great performances all around from a bunch of people, like I mentioned, who don't get cast in very good things or even anything anymore <laughs> to some extent. Um, it's a it's a great movie, especially if you did like The Last Jedi and you want to explore that guy's filmography, I would definitely recommend like this and Brothers Bloom and Looper. It's just like you can see the trajectory um, all the way from there to there. Um, and I will especially be wanting to revisit some of those when Knives Out comes out later in the year. I'm really excited for that one. Yeah. Uh, I'm really excited not only for that, but I'm really excited just to see more like Lakeith Stanfield. And more of that incredible cast. It's that like- fucking cast. <laughs> that cast is it's it's not as stacked as the Dune cast, but it's right up there. Well, it's, it's just another example where it's like most people get like blank check opportunities and they're like, oh, hey, I did this big successful movie. I want to do like my dream stupid like sci-fi premise or whatever. Ryan Jones mm-hmm. like, well, I already did that. How about can I cast like everyone who's great? <laughs> mm-hmm. And you can tell it's a lot of character actors who probably read. The, that's why, you know, the script is probably good. Yes. So, I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis, come on. Don Johnson, come on. Chris Evans, come on. He looks to be stealing the show. Christopher Plummer. Christopher Plummer. Of course, Christopher Plummer, yes. But uh, Captain America's stealing that show with that eat shit line. Based on that. I'm so happy that he's actually doing things. Anyways. (laughs) But yes, yes. that is the end of our uh, two directorial debut films discussion, which was mostly about the directorial debuts, I guess, to some degree. We're a bit loopy. We haven't recorded in a few weeks, guys. This is a a bit rusty. It's, it's been a little bit, and one of them is so terrible, so it sent me on a wavelength of, well, I guess we're not talking about the movie. So it's kind of my fault. <laughs> yes. Anyway, uh, let's get into... <laughs> you just blamed me flat out. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. It is your fault. <laughs> anyway, uh, before we go into our picking for next week, which uh, we definitely... Uh, recommend you stick around for that to leave you on that little cliffhanger. Um, We are going to go into some feedback because every week on Mondays at DEDB Pod on Facebook and Twitter, we put out a feeler about like, hey, what are your favorite, least favorite examples of a particular topic, which relates to uh, whatever we're going to be recording that particular week. And uh, we asked all of you, hey, what are the best and worst examples of directorial debuts? So uh, first off is James Rodriguez, who says, uh, it's a great sign of cinema's future that we've had so many strong directorial debuts recently within this past decade. 
Decade, Fruitvale Station, Hereditary, Booksmart, Get Out, Sorry to Bother You, and Obvious Child were all exceptional features which herald uh, the promise of future directors, much as Bound and The Evil Dead once did. Um, on the other side of the coin, a directorial debut can be a harbinger of doom. That would explain uh, Biodome, Get Hard, and the worst film I have ever seen, Keith Lemon, the film, which is some British movie I wasn't aware of because James is one of those British chaps. Yep, and he <laughs> is. What a beautiful voice he has, though. That's that's true. Listen to our Pixar episodes. So sorry. Oh. Um, and I mean, I, I get it with some of those other ones, too. Like Fruitvale Station with Ryan Coogler, I completely agree. I think that one's also gone under the radar since... He's kind of been doing, like, Creed and Black Panther. Um, or Booksmart was a really good one this year for Olivia Wilde. It's always fun, especially as of recent, seeing these, like, people jump out. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. We're definitely in a, in a new, like, era of master directors coming. Like, you got Ryan Coogler, then, I mean, even Jordan Peele, and you know, Ryan Johnson still hasn't even hit his stride, as far as I'm concerned. There's We're right there where these guys are going to be the new Scorsese's and the new... You know, De Palma's and the new Michael Mann's and things like that. I think it's a very exciting time to be a film fan. It's also a very frustrating time, but it's also exciting. Right, and because it's also a problem of like when people do their directorial debuts now, it's usually thinking like, oh, you did this uh, cute, small, independent movie a lot of people loved. Now do a $500 million budget blockbuster right. and oh then my, get buried. Right, exactly. Here's Captain Marvel. You're like, what the fuck? Jesus Christ. <laughs> then, you did bring it on? You do Ant-Man. What? And then, Good lord. But then some people, I think like Ryan Coogler has the best example of that, where it's like, okay, you did I a small so. independent movie, and then you did Creed, which is a franchise, obviously, but it's like a much more intimate, character-focused one, and he hit it so fucking out of the park. And then Black Panther. You, you need to definitely have like a sort of like more of a stepping stone than just like small independent feature massive blockbuster that if it fails you're completely done and you know which is so funny because i know jordan peele turned down blade like the like new marshall yep they went after jordan peele for the first choice he was like nope because he still wants to make his own shit which i also respect yes like i get it i get why why a small time you know not small time but a new director would take on a blockbuster because it could be a guarantee to a new block, another blockbuster, and another blockbuster. But I also respect when like, no, I just want to make the movies I want to make. And so either way, damned if you do, damned if you don't, I guess, Thomas. Yes. Um, our next comment comes from uh, Rafe Tells, who says, uh, Richard Kelly's Donnie Darko, unfortunately nothing else, um, including his own director's cut that failed to live up. Um, Ryan Coogler's Fruitvale Station laid a strong foundation um, that he's continued to build upon. Sophie Coppola's Virgin Suicides is quite fantastic, and Booksmart shows Olivia Wilde has a promising future ahead of her behind the camera. Unfortunately, most bad directorial debuts end up not only being forgettable, but also career killers, and we never see what a burgeoning director might be capable of doing later. Like poor James Cameron, right? We never saw what he could do after that. Never, never. No. That fucking guy. Uh, You know, it's not like he made billions Rafe really hits it on with especially like the example of someone making a big debut and then whatever the fuck they did after with Richard Kelly that's a big one yeah uh Proyas is another one that pops in there too Alex Proyas but at least like Alex Proyas is still making movies to some degree they might not be very successful like a a Gods of Egypt yeah that's what I'm saying He, he made The Crow which was you know I got problems with it, but it's beloved, and I think Dark City is damn near a masterpiece, but then he's done nothing since. Really? But, well, but, 
but he's like he's still at least been making movies as opposed to Richard Kelly made Donnie Darko, then Southland Tales, which was like such a big fiasco. And then that movie The Box with Cameron Diaz and has That was Richard Kelly? It was based off Button Button. Right, right, yes, it's based off that um Richard Matheson story. Right, yeah. but he was just like, hmm, how about I take that and make something weird and cosmic? You can tell the moment it gets to like a weird cosmic territory, you can't really decipher what the hell is going on. That's a Richard Kelly thing. And he hasn't made a movie since then. That was like ten years ago. No, he's yeah, he's got three on the book that are all in development. Uh, well, I'm guessing none will be released. Yeah, they're, they're the same three that have been in development for the, like the last ten years. Wow. that You know what? That's a really good example, actually. Yeah. Because Donnie Darko is a huge movie still. Yes. But it's not very good. I like the original cut. Like the original yeah. theatrical version of it. I think it's, it's a, I, I, admittingly, when I was younger, I loved it. Just like, oh, this is a great well, of movie. Of course. <laughs> now, in oh. the, like, the last time I saw it was probably about like five or so years ago. I'm like, all right, this is a good movie. This is a good promising start. And then it's like, oh, no. <laughs> oh sure, I agree with you. When you're when I was young, I'm like this movie's about me, <laughs> just like every song that stained release. I mean, it's about me, <laughs> yeah. Like of course, but no, it does hold up very well. Much like stains the you know song catalog. Um, no, this hey, episodes I, all over the rails. off the walls. I apologize. I'm all loopy. I'm in a room that's been fumigated. I think I'm stoned. Um, it, it, but no, that's a really, really good example. Donnie Darko got twisted for me because of the goddamn sequel too. Well, the directed video sequel that I guess you were the only one that S, saw. S Darko, yeah, I probably was the only one who saw it. It's so bad, and I just lumped them together. So now I. It's all one movie for me. So, and Jake Gyllenhaal's in Donnie Darko. God damn it. Fuck. Uh, another one of the million, like, a, what, 1.6 billion or something like that people on Earth that you hate? Oh, there's more than that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, man. <laughs> I was giving you some credit, but it's like, oh, you hate the entire human race. <laughs> Brian Kane says, uh, Craig Zoller uh, came out swinging with Bone Tomahawk a few years ago. At the beginning of the year, we had uh, Sand Off at Sparrow Creek from Henry Dunham, which is a really slick, minimalist thriller. Um, I think about Piranha 2 a lot and wonder what Piranha movie we'd be on now if James Cameron knocked it out of the park uh, with that instead of Terminator. Well, that's a really good point. And I do agree with Bone Tomahawk. What a great debut. And that's another one, too, that just like not a lot of people outside of the horror genre of fans uh, really know about. But I also really did dig uh, uh, the Vince Vaughn brawl in Sublock 99. That was so brutally violent. Did you see that one? No, I've only seen Bone Tomahawk, because so, there's that one also dragged across concrete. That's that's where I'm getting at. I haven't seen it, and I don't know that I want to. Like, I, I'm curious. What, what would make you not want to see a movie about dirty cops starring Vince Vaughn and Mel Gibson? Jesus. Fuck, I don't want to see anything with Mel Gibson. I don't want to see anything with Mel Gibson. Which sucks, because I used to really like Mel Gibson. He's Mad Max and Martin Riggs, for God's sakes. But he's also an anti-Semite piece of shit. Hey, hey, he's also a racist. Give him his credit. No, I'm sorry. You're right. Oh, <laughs> and a misogynist. And a misogynist, of course. For we're missing all that, too. The room, mm. That's on his resume. It's just like Mad Max, yep. Braveheart, racist, misogynist. Racist, anti-Semite, <laughs> You know, hmm, that's a lot of credits here. We're going to go ahead and make you do Daddy's Home too. Let's do this. He wrote that Puppet Master movie? Right. Did you see that? 
Behind the scenes, folks, is like this was like a running gag for like several months. Was Adam kept asking me, "Have you seen that Puppet Master movie?" (laughs) (laughs) And no, I have not seen that Puppet Master. It's insanely offensive, too. So I do the Bo Tomahawk, great. Brawl's Headlock ninety nine, really good. I don't really care about the rest of his filmography, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Well, there's only one film he's directed since, so uh, I guess we'll see from here. About that. Um, but uh, one last feedback in reference to this from uh, Shane Steele says, Best, it's got to be Citizen Kane, right? Worst, Double Down. God bless you, Neil Breen. Double Down? Oh, okay. So, uh, one of these days we are going to talk about Neil Breen film. I know this. Right. I know this. He's the guy who made, like, Fateful Findings and uh, <laughs> recently um, Twisted Pair, which is amazing. Um God. It's it's such a brilliant film. <laughs> Where's this guy getting funding? That's what I want to know. It's mostly self financed because he's like some kind of architect in Arizona that makes a lot of money, and mm. you can tell that like the funding only is as much as like, hey, can we rent out a conference building that I can shoot at for a night? Jesus Christ! <laughs> it's it's and then a green screen that he uses as well, where he makes all of these movies that are just about like. Oh man, Neil Breen, you are the savior that will help all of us against the corrupt government. <laughs> That's every one of his movies. <laughs> okay, I'm sold. <laughs> Watch them. We'll, we'll, we will be talking about one of them at some point. I just gotta find the place yeah. to fit it in. Citizen Kane, of course, is like one that kept coming up when I was doing research, of course. Cause that, and that's another example where Orson Welles made that and it pissed off so many people like the William Randolph Hearst and shit that it's like, oh, well, uh, you're going to get fucked over the rest of your career. Even though you keep making great films after that, you're just going to get fucked so much. And then you're going to end up eating, you know, fucking fudge sickles <laughs> to your last days. <laughs> Gordon's fish sticks. Um, oh, I love these fish sticks and frozen <laughs> peas. So would you say maybe Citizen Kane is the be all end all? Of debuts? I mean, in terms of just having so much influence from there and being so innovative, you could argue that. But also, even around the same time, like, I believe it's the same year as Citizen Kane, or not too long after, is, uh, we mentioned the Maltese Falcon as an influencer brick. Uh, you had John Huston. Uh, that was his directorial debut. And that's a great yeah, that's movie. That's a good one, too. Yeah. yeah. Well, we brought up already uh, Mean Streets. Even though I think he did do, like, Boxcar Birth, there was something like that before that. But Mean Streets is really the first Scorsese TM movie. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's just fantastic. And if you want to go with the first uh, Michael Mann movie that was theatrical release that wasn't a TV movie, was Thief. Oh, and Thief is so great. That's Thief is movie. fucking fantastic. Or even going back to like sort of the older black and white things, one that I really heavily considered doing for the show, but it was just like, this is probably going to be a bit of a bummer to discuss, but it's such a great movie. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf for Mike oh Nichols? Oh my god. <laughs> Dude, I mean, great film. I, I don't, oh, God, you're just well, setting it, me into, even saying the name, I went into a depression spiral. <laughs> That's the thing, it's just like, I love that movie so much, and it's so That's weird so for, him, for him as, like, somebody who, before that was like, hey, I'm doing, like, very typical 50s comedy routines in nightclubs, and it's like, oh, hey, let me make the most fucked up suburban drama I could make. <laughs> right. But I do think that everybody that wrote in, you notice a lot of common titles, but uh, all valid, I do believe. Mm-hmm. And especially, it's nice to see with the modern ones that you have a bit more diversity, because we talk about some of these older ones, it's like, oh, all older white guys, versus now we get, like, as you mentioned, a Jordan Peele or Ryan Coogler or an Olivia Wilde, right. like, coming onto the scene and doing interesting stuff and getting attention and notice. Even though we've shit on him before, but even Robert Rodriguez with El Mariachi. 
Oh my god, a classic story of just somebody literally with nothing making such a splash. Yeah, I mean, with ten grand, I, I, if I'm correct, that's with stunts, action, guns, sets, costuming, everything. I mean, that's huge. Yes. Fucking Reservoir Dogs, for God's sakes. All right, that that sort of like '90s generation where it's like those two, and then um, Clerks as well, kind yep. of like oh, sort man. of helping. To... <laughs> but come on, but Clerks though, Adam. No, Clerks is still great. I think it's, Kevin Smith for me has just fallen off so badly in the last couple of years. But no, his, his first ones I do not detract from what he did mm-hmm. and the skill involved and in, in the effort put forward and how groundbreaking and culture shocking those movies really were. But maybe put a pin in that for a potential future episode, Adam. Oh. Yes. Great. That's happening. Anyway, uh, one bit of feedback that we want to read in reference to a previous episode we did where uh, Aaron Chung said, uh, why don't you play in hell? Such gleeful fun with a heart emoji. It's got a heart. 100% right. 100% Yes. 100% right. Uh, but then, uh, thanks to uh, Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used for our show, I'll listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show. And thank you all of you for the feedback out there. And please, if you like us, make sure to follow us on the Facebook page and Twitter page at DEDBpod, where you can provide some feedback there. Um, or you can also send feedback to doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com. Or you can even talk to me on my own individual account at NotTheWho'sTommy on Twitter. And uh, I do some writings for one, uh, TrueSuperheroFans.com is a site where I do satirical superhero news. I just put out one about Scarlett Johansson giving promotional tips for her Black Widow co-stars, because she just knows how to make great comments that aren't controversial in the slightest. Not at all. Not no, at all. Not at all. Perfect angel. Exactly. And uh, you can also uh, find some... Uh, Writings where I do reviews and such at marianithomas.wordpress.com. I have an It Chapter 2 review out there that you can read. And in fact, you can listen to both Adam and myself on an episode of The Horror Returns talking about It Chapter 2 along with 1408. Uh, it's uh, an episode we're literally about to record in like 30 minutes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Long day of podcasting. <laughs> yep, that's what we do. Um, and he's already loopy now. Imagine what that's going to sound oh, like. Oh, God, gotta it's going to really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be long and meandering, like at Chapter 2. <laughs> For more great content like this, though, please make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever other formats, like we're on Spotify, we're on Stitcher, we're on uh, the YouTubes, we're on the ESO Network, of course, if you discovered us there. I want you to listen to some of our earlier episodes we posted there, even on our original feed at Podbean for the other, like, 67 episodes we hadn't posted on ESO beforehand. Um, And uh, make sure to um, either give us a review or rate us or at least share the show, just so we get more visibility out there and get uh, more... Listeners joining our double-edged double family, as it were. Yeah, I mean, what the hell? What the hell? <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, come out. Come out. Uh, well, Adam, we definitely have to end this episode very soon. Yeah. So, yeah, let's yeah, go yeah. ahead and get into our picks for uh, our next week. And uh, next week, Adam, we're uh, celebrating another person, and specifically, uh, I'd argue, a pretty big icon of the screen, um, especially for the 70s and 80s action screening, and uh, still is making movies to this day, Mr. Sylvester Stallone. It's like, hey, I mean, you know, I just, uh, I just get up there and I act, you know, I just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I fucking love him so much. I love Sylvester Stallone, man. 
you know, Rocky was huge for me as a kid. And I grew up in the 80s and early 90s, so I had my action heroes. It was like Sly, Arnold, Van Damme, Seagal, and Lundgren. And I always kind of liked Sly a little bit more. It's probably because he was the most sort of human as opposed to monstrously big. And could act, really, when he tries. Yes, that's true. He, he can definitely act when he tries. And we'll talk about this definitely more when we get to that episode. But um, I came to Stallone a lot later. I was more of an Arnold kid in terms of like mm-hmm. big action stars anyway. Because um, Arnold, to be fair, was the most sort of like lovable, cuddly version of those <laughs> after a certain point. Um, but yeah, uh, it'll be interesting because uh, he's got a very diverse filmography, including uh, now he's producing a Rambo Last Blood in theaters. Uh, is it necessary? And where is this all of a sudden he has a niece? What? What is going on? Uh, just stop. Stop, Stallone. I mean, it's the last blood. Clearly, he won't keep going on for another drop of blood. Of course not. Rambo, the last blood. Rambo, dialysis. Like, there's, <laughs> it's got to be bullshit. Like, just stop. Rambo nursing home. Right, exactly. Rambo transfusion. Rambo hospice. My favorite of the entire series. Uh, Rambo cremation or... (laughs) That one gets really trippy and spiritual. Anyway, so um, for this occasion of talking about Sly Stallone and his films, uh, you have two good movies, Adam, and I have two bad movies. So in honor of that, um, I have selected these two bad movies and I have picked... Numbers between 1 and 10 for both of those, and you've done the same for yours. So I'll pick a number between 1 and 10 for your choices, and that'll get us our good feature. You'll pick a number between 1 and 10 for my bad choices, and that'll get us our bad feature. So, for your two good choices, Adam, I'm going to pick number... Sly 7. At number 8, I have Copland. Fuck! Yes, we're doing Copland! I'm so excited! No, I mean, what a fucking just fantastic movie. And... I'd almost say, inarguably, his best performance. Oh, he's so great. I can't wait. All I, I have so much to say. I can't wait to talk about it. I'm Good. so happy. Good. I'm so happy. Yeah, number three, I had Creed. Well, I mean, a great performance from him, obviously. Oscar nominated. Yes, uh, honestly deserved it as much as I like Bridge of Spies, but come on, Mark Riley, it's, it's, it's Sly. He's so good. No, I definitely agree. I definitely agree. Yes. Oh, fuck. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Adam. Number between one and ten for my two bad choices. I mean, there's there's thousands. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, number two. You know, Adam, that's an appropriate choice. Uh, at number two, directly, a movie about a true duo um, that is one of the, I would argue, funniest bad movies of all time. Tango and Cash. Oh, oh, good, excellent. Oh, that would not have been a bad pick. Oh, I love Tango and Cash. I love it's a terrible. I love Tango and Cash, but for all the wrong reasons. I think it's like Roadhouse movie. level. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. in a similar fashion to Roadhouse. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but yeah. <laughs> what was your other choice? Um, at number seven, I had Rainbow Three. Oh, that's a bad one. Yeah. I swear to God, when you were saying about a duo, I was like, if he picked fucking Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, I'm going to flip my fucking computer over. The. <laughs> <laughs> that was like the those were the big two that came up was like stop my mom will shoot or rhinestone and i'm like i don't know if i want to bother with either of those necessarily i'm good you know the thing about that is man i know a lot of people who like rhinestone i mean i've never seen either of those films so i don't know well, you're not fucking missing anything bro <laughs> but, but but dolly adam dolly i know 
<laughs> Get the fuck out of here with this. No, I think we got I think we got a really good pick. I think we got Stallone really showing what he can do as an actor and Stallone showing what he was sort of pigeonholed into. We have one that's at the height of Stallone excess and one at like sort of a bottoming out point for his career where he kind of tried to do a comeback. Yes. So it's definitely, that did not work out, unfortunately. Unfortunately not. But we'll talk about all that next time. So until then, uh, Adam, we gotta go... Uh, we just gotta go. We're really tired, guys. This is a very weird episode. Good night, everybody. What a <laughs> Good night. Good night. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.